Appendix Life and Times of Frederick Douglass by Frederick Douglass. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Appendix Oration by Frederick Douglass, delivered on the occasion of the unveiling of the Freedmen's Monument, in memory of Abraham Lincoln in Lincoln Park, Washington, D.C., April 14, 1876. Friends and fellow citizens, I warmly congratulate you upon the highly interesting object which has caused you to assemble in such numbers and spirit as you have to-day. This occasion is, in some respects, remarkable. Wise and thoughtful men of our race, who shall come after us and study the lesson of our history in the United States, who shall survey the long and dreary spaces over which we have travelled, and who shall count the links in the great chain of events by which we have reached our present position, will make a note of this occasion. They will think of it and speak of it with a sense of manly pride and complacency. I congratulate you also upon the very favourable circumstances in which we meet to-day. They are high, inspiring, and uncommon. They lend grace, glory, and significance to the object for which we have met. Nowhere else in this great country, with its uncounted towns and cities, unlimited wealth, and immeasurable territory extending from sea to sea, could conditions be found more favourable to the success of this occasion than are found here. We stand to-day at the national centre to perform something like a national act, an act which is to go into history, and we are here where every pulsation of the national heart can be heard, felt, and reciprocated. A thousand wires, fed with thought and winged with lightning, put us in instantaneous communication with the loyal and true men all over this country. Few facts could better illustrate the vast and wonderful change which has taken place in our condition, as a people, than the fact of our assembling here to-day for the purpose which has called us together. Harmless, beautiful, proper, and praiseworthy as this demonstration is, I cannot forget that no such demonstration would have been tolerated here twenty years ago. The spirit of slavery and barbarism which, in some dark and distant parts of our country, still lingers to blight and to destroy, would have made our assembling here the signal and excuse for opening upon us all the floodgates of wrath and violence. That we are here in peace to-day is a compliment and a credit to American civilization, and a prophecy of still greater national enlightenment and progress in the future. I refer to the past, not in malice, for this is no day for malice, but simply to place more distinctly in front the gratifying and glorious change which has come both to our white fellow-citizens and to ourselves, and to congratulate all upon the contrast between now and then between the new dispensation of freedom, with its thousand blessings to both races, and the old dispensation of slavery, with its ten thousand evils to both races, white and black. In view, then, of the past, the present, and the future, with the long and dark history of our bondage behind us, and with liberty, progress, and enlightenment before us, I again congratulate you upon this auspicious day and hour. Friends and fellow-citizens, the story of our presence here is soon and easily told. We are here in the District of Columbia, here in the city of Washington, the most luminous point of American territory, a city recently transformed and made beautiful in its body and in its spirit. We are here in the place where the ablest and best men of the country are sent to devise the policy, enact the laws, and shape the destiny of the Republic. We are here with the stately pillars and majestic dome of the capital of the nation looking down upon us. We are here with the broad earth freshly adorned with the foliage and flowers of spring for our church, and all races, colors, and conditions of men for our congregation. In a word, we are here to express, as best we may, by appropriate forms and ceremonies, our grateful sense of the vast, high, and preeminent services rendered by Abraham Lincoln to ourselves, to our race, to our country, and to the whole world. The sentiment that brings us here to-day is one of the noblest that can stir and thrill the human heart. It has crowned the high places of all civilized nations, and made them glorious with the grandest and most enduring works of art, designed to illustrate the characters and perpetuate the memories of great public men. 
it is the sentiment which from year to year adorns with fragrant and beautiful flowers the graves of our loyal brave and patriotic soldiers who fell in defence of the union and liberty it is the sentiment of gratitude and appreciation which has in the presence of many who hear me often filled yonder heights of arlington with the eloquence of eulogy and the sublime enthusiasm of poetry and song a sentiment which can never die while the republic lives for the first time in the history of our people and in the history of the whole american people we join in this high worship and march conspicuously in the line of this time-honoured custom first things are always interesting and this is one of our first things it is the first time that in this form and manner we have sought to do honour to an american great man however deserving and illustrious i commend the fact to notice let it be told in every part of the republic let men of all parties and opinions hear it let those who despise us not less than those who respect us know it and that now and here in the spirit of liberty loyalty and gratitude we unite in this act of reverent homage let it be known everywhere and by everybody who takes an interest in human progress and in the amelioration of the condition of mankind that in the presence and with the approval of the members of the american house of representatives reflecting the general sentiment of the country that in the presence of that august body the american senate representing the highest intelligence and the calmest judgment in the country in the presence of the supreme court and chief justice of the united states to whose decisions we all patriotically bow in the presence and under the steady eye of the honoured and trusted president of the united states with the members of his wise and patriotic cabinet we the coloured people newly emancipated and rejoicing in our blood-bought freedom near the close of the first century in the life of this republic have now and here unveiled set apart and dedicated a monument of enduring granite and bronze in every line feature and figure of which the men of this generation may read and those of after-coming generations may read something of the exalted character and great works of abraham lincoln the first martyr president of the united states fellow citizens in what we have said and done to-day and in what we may say and do hereafter we disclaim everything like arrogance and assumption we claim for ourselves no superior devotion to the character history and memory of the illustrious name whose monument we have here this day dedicated we fully comprehend the relation of abraham lincoln both to ourselves and to the white people of the united states truth is proper and beautiful at all times and in all places and it is never in any case more proper and beautiful than when one is speaking of a great public man whose example is likely to be commended for honour and imitation long after his departure to the solemn shades the silent continents of eternity it must be admitted truth compels me to admit even here in the presence of the monument we have erected to his memory that abraham lincoln was not in the fullest sense of the word either our man or our model in his interests in his associations in his habits of thought and in his prejudices he was a white man he was pre-eminently the white man's president entirely devoted to the welfare of white men he was ready and willing at any time during the first years of his administration to deny postpone and sacrifice the rights of humanity in the coloured people in order to promote the welfare of the white people of this country in all his education and feeling he was an american of the americans he came into the presidential chair upon one principle alone namely opposition to the extension of slavery his arguments in furtherance of this policy had their motive and mainspring in his patriotic devotion to the interests of his own race to protect defend and perpetuate slavery in the states where it existed abraham lincoln was not less ready than any other president to draw the sword of the nation he was ready to execute all the supposed constitutional guarantees of the united states constitution in favour of the slave system anywhere inside the slave states he was willing to pursue recapture and send back the fugitive slave to his master and to suppress a slave rising for liberty 
though the guilty master were already in arms against the government the race to which we belong were not the special objects of his consideration knowing this i concede to you my white fellow-citizens a pre-eminence in this worship at once full and supreme first midst and last you and yours were the objects of his deepest affection and his most earnest solicitude you are the children of abraham lincoln we are at best only his stepchildren children by adoption children by force of circumstances and necessity to you it especially belongs to sound his praises to preserve and perpetuate his memory to multiply his statues to hang his pictures high upon your walls and to commend his example for to you he was a great and glorious friend and benefactor instead of supplanting you at this altar we would exhort you to build high his monuments let them be of the most costly material of the most cunning workmanship let their forms be symmetrical beautiful and perfect let their bases be upon the solid rocks and let their summits lean against the unchanging blue overhanging sky and let them endure for ever but while in the abundance of your wealth and in the fullness of your just and patriotic devotion you do all this we entreat you to despise not the humble offering we this day unveil to view for while abraham lincoln saved for you a country he delivered us from a bondage one hour of which according to jefferson was worse than ages of the oppression your fathers rose in rebellion to oppose fellow-citizens ours is no new-born zeal and devotion merely a thing of this moment the name of Abraham Lincoln was near and dear to our hearts in the darkest and most perilous hours of the Republic. We were no more ashamed of him when shrouded in clouds of darkness, of doubt, and defeat, than when we saw him crowned with victory, honour, and glory. Our faith in him was often taxed and strained to the uttermost, but it never failed. When he tarried long in the mountain, when he strangely told us that we were the cause of the war, when he still more strangely told us to leave the land in which we were born, when he refused to employ our arms in defence of the Union, when, after accepting our services as coloured soldiers, he refused to retaliate our murder and torture as coloured prisoners, when he told us he would save the Union if he could with slavery, when he revoked the proclamation of emancipation of General Fremont, when he refused in the days of the inaction and defeat of the army of the potomac to remove its popular commander who was more zealous in his efforts to protect slavery than to suppress rebellion when we saw all this and more we were at times grieved stunned and greatly bewildered but our hearts believed while they ached and bled nor was this even at that time a blind and unreasoning superstition despite the mist and haze that surround him despite the tumult the hurry and confusion of the hour we were able to take a comprehensive view of abraham lincoln and to make reasonable allowance for the circumstances of his position we saw him measured him and estimated him not by stray utterances to injudicious and tedious delegations who often tried his patience not by isolated facts torn from their connection not by any partial and imperfect glimpses caught at inopportune moments but by a broad survey in the light of the stern logic of great events and in view of that divinity which shapes our ends rough hew them how we will we came to the conclusion that the hour and the man of our redemption had somehow met in the person of abraham lincoln it mattered little to us what language he might employ on special occasions it mattered little to us when we fully knew him whether he was swift or slow in his movements it was enough for us that abraham lincoln was at the head of a great movement and was in living and earnest sympathy with that movement which in the nature of things must go on until slavery should be utterly and for ever abolished in the united states when therefore it shall be asked what we have to do with the memory of abraham lincoln or what Abraham Lincoln had to do with us, the answer is ready, full, and complete. Though he loved Caesar less than Rome, though the Union was more to him than our freedom or our future, 
under his wise and beneficent rule we saw ourselves gradually lifted from the depths of slavery to the heights of liberty and manhood and his wise and beneficent rule and by measures approved and vigorously pressed by him we saw that the handwriting of ages in the form of prejudice and proscription was rapidly fading from the face of our whole country under his rule and in due time about as soon after all as the country could tolerate the strange spectacle we saw our brave sons and brothers laying off the rags of bondage and being clothed all over in the blue uniforms of the soldiers of the united states under his rule we saw two hundred thousand of our dark and dusky people responding to the call of abraham lincoln and with muskets on their shoulders and eagles on their buttons timing their high footsteps to liberty and union under the national flag under his rule we saw the independence of the black republic of haiti the special object of slaveholding aversion and horror fully recognized and her minister a colored gentleman duly received here in the city of washington under his rule we saw the internal slave trade which had so long disgraced the nation abolished and slavery abolished in the district of columbia under his rule we saw for the first time the law enforced against the foreign slave trade and for the first time a slave trader hanged like any other pirate or murderer under his rule assisted by the greatest captain of our age and his inspiration we saw the confederate states based upon the idea that our race must be slaves and slaves forever battered to pieces and scattered to the four winds under his rule and in the fullness of time we saw abraham lincoln after giving the slaveholders three months grace in which to save their hateful slave system penning the immortal paper which special in its language but general in its principles and effect makes slavery forever impossible in the united states though we waited long we saw all this and more can any colored man or any white man friendly to the freedom of all men ever forget the night which followed the first day of january eighteen sixty three when the world was to see if abraham lincoln would prove to be as good as his word i shall never forget that memorable night when at a public meeting in a distant city with three thousand others not less anxious than myself i waited and watched for the word of deliverance which we had heard read to-day nor shall i ever forget the outburst of joy and thanksgiving that rent the air when the lightning brought to us the emancipation proclamation in that happy hour we forgot all delay and forgot all tardiness forgot that the president by a promise to withhold the bolt which would smite the slave system with destruction had bribed the rebels to lay down their arms and we were thenceforth willing to allow the president all the latitude of time phraseology and every honourable device that statesmanship might require for the achievement of a great and beneficent measure of liberty and progress fellow-citizens there is little necessity on this occasion to speak critically and at length of this great and good man and of his high mission in the world that ground has been fully occupied and completely covered both here and elsewhere the whole field of fact and fancy has been gleaned and garnered any man can say things that are true of abraham lincoln but no man can say anything that is new of abraham lincoln his personal traits and public acts are better known to the american people than are those of any other man of his age he was a mystery to no man who saw him and heard him though high in position the humblest could approach him and feel at home in his presence though deep he was transparent though strong he was gentle though decided and pronounced in his convictions he was tolerant towards those who differed from him and patient under reproaches even those who only knew him through his public utterances obtained a tolerably clear idea of his character and his personality the image of the man went out with his words and those who read them knew him i have said that president lincoln was a white man and shared toward the colored race the prejudices common to his countrymen looking back to his times and to the condition of his country we are compelled to admit that this unfriendly feeling on his part may be safely set down as one element of his wonderful success in organizing the loyal american people for the tremendous conflict before them 
and bringing them safely through that conflict. His great mission was to accomplish two things. First, to save his country from dismemberment and ruin, and second, to free his country from the great crime of slavery. To do one or the other, or both, he must have the earnest sympathy and the powerful cooperation of his loyal fellow-countrymen. Without this primary and essential condition to success, his efforts must have been vain and utterly fruitless. Had he put the abolition of slavery before the salvation of the Union, he would have inevitably driven from him a powerful class of the American people, and rendered resistance to rebellion impossible. Viewed from the genuine abolition ground, Mr. Lincoln seemed tardy, cold, dull, and indifferent. But measuring him by the sentiment of his country, a sentiment he was bound as a statesman to consult, he was swift, zealous, radical, and determined. Though Mr. Lincoln shared the prejudices of his white fellow-countrymen against the negro, it is hardly necessary to say that in his heart of hearts he loathed and hated slavery. Footnote. I am naturally anti-slavery. If slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. I cannot remember when I did not so think and feel. Letter of Mr. Lincoln to Mr. Hodges of Kentucky, April 4, 1864. The man who could say, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war shall soon pass away. Yet if God wills it continue till all the wealth piled by two hundred years of bondage shall have been wasted, and each drop of blood drawn by the lash shall have been paid for by one drawn by the sword, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Gives all needed proof of his feeling on the subject of slavery. He was willing, while the South was loyal, that it should have its pound of flesh, because he thought it was so nominated in the bond. But farther than this, no earthly power could make him go. Fellow citizens, whatever else in the world may be partial, unjust, and uncertain, time, time, is impartial, just and certain in its action. In the realm of mind, as well as in the realm of matter, it is a great worker, and often works wonders. The honest and comprehensive statesman, clearly discerning the needs of his country, and earnestly endeavouring to do his whole duty, though covered and blistered with reproaches, may safely leave his course to the silent judgment of time. Few great public men have ever been the victims of fiercer denunciation than was Abraham Lincoln during his administration. He was often wounded in the house of his friends, reproaches came thick and fast upon him from within, and from without, and from opposite quarters. He was assailed by abolitionists, he was assailed by slaveholders, he was assailed by the men who were for peace at any price. He was assailed by those who were for a more vigorous prosecution of the war. He was assailed for not making the war an abolition war, and he was most bitterly assailed for making the war an abolition war. But now, behold the change. The judgment of the present hour is that, taking him for all in all, measuring the tremendous magnitude of the work before him, considering the necessary means to ends, and surveying the end from the beginning, infinite wisdom has seldom sent any man into the world better fitted for his mission than was Abraham Lincoln. His birth, his training, and his natural endowments, both mental and physical, were strongly in his favour. Born and reared among the lowly, a stranger to wealth and luxury, compelled from tender youth to sturdy manhood to grapple single-handed with the flintiest hardships of life, he grew strong in the manly and heroic qualities demanded by the great mission to which he was called by the votes of his countrymen. The hard condition of his early life, which would have depressed and broken down weaker men, only gave a greater life, vigour, and buoyancy to the heroic spirit of Abraham Lincoln. He was ready for any kind of quality of work. What other young men dreaded in the shape of toil, he took hold of with the utmost cheerfulness. A spade, a rake, a hoe, a pickaxe, or a bill, a hook to reap, a scythe to mow, a flail, or what you will. All day long he could split heavy rails in the woods, and half the night long he could study his English grammar by the uncertain flare and glare of the light made by a pine knot. He was at home on the land with his axe, with his maul, with gluts, and his wedges, 
and he was equally at home on the water with his oars with his poles with his planks and with his boat-hooks and whether in his flatboat on the mississippi river or at the fireside of his frontier cabin he was a man of work a son of toil himself he was linked in brotherly sympathy with the sons of toil in every loyal part of the republic this very fact gave him tremendous power with the american people and materially contributed not only to selecting him to the presidency but in sustaining his administration of the government upon his inauguration as president of the united states an office fitted to tax and strain the largest abilities even when it is assumed under the most favorable conditions abraham lincoln was met by a tremendous crisis he was called upon not merely to administer the government but to decide in the face of terrible odds the fate of the republic a formidable rebellion rose in his path before him the union was practically dissolved his country was torn and rent asunder at the centre hostile armies armed with the munitions of war which the republic had provided for its own defence were already organised against the republic the tremendous question for him to decide was whether his country should survive the crisis and flourish or be dismembered and perish his predecessor in office had already decided the question in favour of national dismemberment by denying to it the right of self-defence and self-preservation a right which belongs to the meanest insect happily for the country happily for you and me the judgment of james buchanan the patrician was not the judgment of abraham lincoln the plebeian he brought his strong common sense sharpened in the school of adversity to bear upon the question he did not hesitate he did not doubt he did not falter but at once resolved that at whatever peril at whatever cost the union of the states should be preserved a patriot himself his faith was strong and unwavering in the patriotism of his countrymen timid men said before mr lincoln's inauguration that we had seen the last president of the united states a voice in influential quarters said let the union slide some said that a union maintained by the sword was worthless others said a rebellion of eight millions cannot be suppressed but in the midst of all this tumult and timidity and against all this abraham lincoln was clear in his duty and had an oath in heaven he calmly and bravely heard the voice of doubt and fear all around him but he had an oath in heaven and there was not power enough on earth to make this honest boatman backwoodsman and broad-handed splitter of rails evade or violate that sacred oath he had not been schooled in the ethics of slavery his plain life had favoured his love of truth he had not been taught that treason and perjury were the proof of honour and honesty his moral training was against him saying one thing when he meant another the trust which abraham lincoln had in himself and in the people was surprising and grand but it was also enlightened and well-founded he knew the american people better than they knew themselves and his truth was based upon this knowledge fellow citizens the fourteenth day of april eighteen sixty six of which this is the eleventh anniversary is now and will ever remain a memorable day in the annals of this republic it was on the evening of this day while a fierce and sanguinary rebellion was in the last stages of its desolating power while its armies were broken and scattered before the invincible armies of grant and sherman while a great nation torn and rent by war was already beginning to raise to the skies loud anthems of joy at the dawn of peace that it was startled amazed and overwhelmed by the crowning crime of slavery the assassination of abraham lincoln it was a new crime a pure act of malice no purpose of the rebellion was to be served by it it was the simple gratification of a hell-black spirit of revenge but it has done good after all it has filled the country with a deeper abhorrence of slavery and a deeper love for the great liberator had abraham lincoln died from any of the numerous ills to which flesh is heir had he reached that good old age of which his vigorous constitution and his temperate habits gave promise had he been permitted to see the end of his great work had the solemn curtain of death come down but gradually we should still have been smitten with a heavy grief and treasured his name lovingly but dying as he did die by the red hand of violence 
killed assassinated taken off without warning not because of personal hate for no man who knew abraham lincoln could hate him but because of his fidelity to the union and liberty he is doubly dear to us and his memory will be precious forever fellow citizens i end as i began with congratulations we have done a good work for our race to-day in doing honour to the memory of our friend and liberator we have been doing highest honours to ourselves and to those who come after us we have been attaching to ourselves a name and fame imperishable and immortal we have also been defending ourselves from a blighting scandal when now it shall be said that the coloured man is soulless that he has no appreciation of benefits or benefactors when the foul reproach of ingratitude is hurled at us and it is attempted to scourge us beyond the range of human brotherhood we may calmly point to the monument we have this day erected to the memory of abraham lincoln west india emancipation extract from a speech delivered by frederick douglass in elmira new york august one eighteen eighty at a great meeting of colored people met to celebrate west india emancipation and where he was received with marked respect and approval by the president of the day and the immense crowd there assembled it is placed in this book partly as a grateful tribute to the noble transatlantic men and women through whose unwearied exertions the system of negro slavery was finally abolished in all the british isles mr president i thank you sincerely for this cordial greeting i hear in your speech something like a welcome home after a long absence more years of my life and labours have been spent in this than in any other state of the union anywhere within a hundred miles of the goodly city of rochester i feel myself at home and among friends within that circumference there resides a people which have no superiors in point of enlightenment liberality and civilization allow me to thank you also for your generous words of sympathy and approval in respect to this important support to a public man i have been unusually fortunate my forty years of work in the cause of the oppressed and enslaved has been well noted well appreciated and well rewarded all classes and colours of men at home and abroad have in this way assisted in holding up my hands looking back through these long years of toil and conflict during which i have had blows to take as well as blows to give and have sometimes received wounds and bruises both in body and in mind my only regret is that i have been enabled to do so little to lift up and strengthen our long enslaved and still oppressed people my apology for these remarks personal to myself is in the fact that i am now standing mainly in the presence of a new generation most of the men with whom i lived and laboured in the early years of the abolition movement have passed beyond the borders of this life scarcely any of the coloured men who advocated our cause and who started when i did are now numbered among the living and i begin to feel somewhat lonely but while i have the sympathy and approval of men and women like these before me i shall give with joy my latest breath in support of your claim to justice liberty and equality among men the day we celebrate is preeminently the coloured man's day the great event by which it is distinguished and by which it will forever be distinguished from all other days of the year has justly claimed thoughtful attention among statesmen and social reformers throughout the world while to them it is a luminous point in human history and worthy of thought in the coloured man it addresses not merely the intelligence but the feeling the emancipation of our brothers in the west indies comes home to us and stirs our hearts and fills our souls with those grateful sentiments which link mankind in a common brotherhood in the history of the american conflict with slavery the day we celebrate has played an important part emancipation in the west indies was the first bright star in a stormy sky the first smile after a long providential frown the first ray of hope the first tangible fact demonstrating the possibility of a peaceful transition from slavery to freedom of the negro race whoever else may forget or slight the claims of this day it can never be to us other than memorable and glorious the story of it shall be brief and soon told six and forty years ago on the day we now celebrate 
there went forth over the blue waters of the Caribbean Sea a great message from the British throne, hailed with startling shouts of joy and thrilling songs of praise. That message liberated, set free, and brought within the pale of civilization eight hundred thousand people, who, till then, had been esteemed as beasts of burden. How vast, sudden, and startling was this transformation! In one moment, a mere tick of a watch, the twinkle of an eye, the glance of the morning sun, saw a bondage which had resisted the humanity of ages, defied earth and heaven, instantly ended, saw the slave whip burnt to ashes, saw the slave's chains melted, saw his fetters broken, and the irresponsible power of the slave-master over his victim forever destroyed. I have been told by eye-witnesses of the scene, that in the first moment of it, the emancipated hesitated to accept it for what it was. They did not know whether to receive it as a reality, a dream, or a vision of the fancy. No wonder they were thus amazed and doubtful, after their terrible years of darkness and sorrow, which seemed to have no end. Like much other good news, it was thought too good to be true. But the silence and hesitation they observed was only momentary. When fully assured that the good tidings which had come across the sea to them were not only good, but true, that they were indeed no longer slaves but free, that the lash of the slave-driver was no longer in the air, but buried in the earth, that their limbs were no longer chained, but subject to their own will, the manifestations of their joy and gratitude knew no bounds, and sought expression in the loudest and wildest possible forms. They ran about, they danced, they sang, they gazed into the blue sky, bounded into the air, kneeled, prayed, shouted, rolled upon the ground and embraced each other. They laughed and wept for joy. Those who witnessed the scene say that they never before saw anything like it. We are sometimes asked why we American citizens annually celebrate West India emancipation, when we might celebrate American emancipation. Why go abroad, say they, when we might as well stay at home? The answer is easily given. Human liberty excludes all idea of home and abroad. It is universal and spurns localization. When a deed is done for freedom, though the broad earth's aching breast runs a thrill of joy prophetic, trembling on from east to west. It is bounded by no geographical lines and knows no national limitations. Like the glorious sun of the heavens, its light shines for all. But besides this general consideration, this boundless power and glory of liberty, West India emancipation has claims upon us as an event in this nineteenth century in which we live. For, rich as this century is in moral and material achievements, in progress and civilization, it can claim nothing for itself greater and grander than this act of the West India emancipation. Whether we consider the matter or the manner of it, the tree or its fruit, it is noteworthy, memorable, and sublime, especially is the manner of its accomplishment worthy of consideration. Its best lesson to the world, its most encouraging word to all who toil and trust in the cause of justice and liberty, to all who oppose oppression and slavery, is a word of sublime faith and courage, faith in the truth, and courage in the expression. Great and valuable concessions have in different ages been made to the liberties of mankind. They have, however, come not at the command of reason and persuasion, but by the sharp and terrible edge of the sword. To this rule West India emancipation is a splendid exception. It came not by the sword, but by the word, not by the brute force of numbers, but by the still small voice of truth, not by barricades, bayonets, and bloody revolution, but by peaceful agitation, not by divine interference, but by the exercise of simple human reason and feeling. I repeat that in this peculiarity we have what is most valuable to the human race generally. It is a revelation of a power inherent in human society. It shows what can be done against wrong in the world, without the aid of armies on the earth or of angels in the sky. It shows that men have in their own hands the peaceful means of putting all their moral and political enemies under their feet and of making this world a healthy and happy dwelling-place, if they will but faithfully and courageously use these means. The world needed just such a revelation of the power of conscience and of human brotherhood, one that overleaped the accident of color and of race, 
and set at naught the whisperings of prejudice. The friends of freedom in England saw in the Negro a man, a moral and responsible being. Having settled this in their own minds, they, in the name of humanity, denounced the crime of his enslavement. It was the faithful, persistent, and enduring enthusiasm of Thomas Clarkson, William Wilberforce, Granville Sharp, William Knibb, Henry Brougham, Thomas Fowell Buxton, Daniel O'Connell, George Thompson, and their noble co-workers, that finally thawed the British heart into sympathy for the slave, and moved the strong arm of that government in mercy to put an end to his bondage. Let no American, especially no colored American, withhold a generous recognition of this stupendous achievement. What though it was not American but British? What though it was not Republican but monarchical? What though it was not the American Congress but from the British Parliament? What though it was not from the chair of a president but from the throne of a queen? It was none the less a triumph of right over wrong, of good over evil, and a victory for the whole human race. Besides, we may properly celebrate this day because of its special relation to our American emancipation. In doing this, we do not sacrifice the general to the special, or the universal to the local. The cause of human liberty is won the whole world over. The downfall of slavery under British power meant the downfall of slavery ultimately under American power, and the downfall of Negro slavery everywhere. But the effect of this great and philanthropic measure, naturally enough, was greater here than elsewhere. Outside the British Empire, no other nation was in position to feel it as much as we. The stimulus it gave to the American anti-slavery movement was immediate, pronounced, and powerful. British example became a tremendous lever in the hands of American abolitionists. It did much to shame and discourage the spirit of caste and the advocacy of slavery in church and state. It could not well have been otherwise. No man liveth unto himself. What is true in this respect of individual men is equally true of nations. Both impart good or ill to their age and generation. But putting aside this consideration, so worthy of thought, we have special reasons for claiming the first of August as the birthday of Negro emancipation, not only in the West Indies, but in the United States. Spite of our national independence, a common language, a common literature, a common history, and a common civilization, makes us and keeps us still a part of the British nation, if not a part of the British Empire. England can take no step forward in the pathway of a higher civilization without drawing us in the same direction. She is still the mother country, and the mother, too, of our abolition movement. Though her emancipation came in peace, and ours in war, though hers cost treasure, and ours blood, though hers was the result of a sacred preference, and ours resulted in part from necessity, the motive and mainspring of the respective measures were the same in both. The abolitionists of this country have been charged with bringing on the war between the North and South, and in one sense this is true. Had there been no anti-slavery agitation at the North, there would have been no active anti-slavery anywhere to resist the demands of the slave power at the South, and where there is no resistance there can be no war. Slavery would then have been nationalized, and the whole country would then have been subjected to its power. Resistance to slavery and the extension of slavery invited and provoked secession and war to perpetuate and extend the slave system. Thus, in the same sense, England is responsible for our civil war. The abolition of slavery in the West Indies gave life and vigor to the abolition movement in America. Clarkson of England gave us Garrison of America. Granville Sharp of England gave us our Wendell Phillips, and Wilberforce of England gave us our peerless Charles Sumner. These grand men and their brave co-workers here took up the moral thunderbolts which had struck down slavery in the West Indies, and hurled them with increased zeal and power against the gigantic system of slavery here, till, goaded to madness, the traffickers in the souls and bodies of men flew to arms, rent asunder the Union at the centre, and filled the land with hostile armies and the ten thousand horrors of war. Out of this tempest, out of this whirlwind and earthquake of war, came the abolition of slavery, came the employment of colored troops, came colored citizens, came colored jurymen, came colored congressmen, came colored schools in the South, 
and came the great amendments of our national constitution. We celebrate this day, too, for the very good reason that we have no other to celebrate. English emancipation has one advantage over American emancipation. Hers has a definite anniversary. Ours has none. Like our slaves, the freedom of the Negro has no birthday. No man can tell the day of the month, or the month of the year, upon which slavery was abolished in the United States. We cannot even tell when it began to be abolished. Like the movement of the sea, no man can tell where one wave begins and another ends. The chains of slavery with us were loosened by degrees. First, we had the struggle in Kansas with border ruffians. Next, we had John Brown at Harper's Ferry. Next, the firing upon Fort Sumter. A little while after, we had Fremont's order freeing the slaves of the rebels in Missouri. Then we had General Butler declaring and treating the slaves of rebels as contraband of war. Next, we had the proposition to arm colored men and make them soldiers for the Union. In 1862, we had the conditional promise of a proclamation of emancipation from President Lincoln, and finally, on the 1st of January, 1863, we had the proclamation itself, and still the end was not yet. Slavery was bleeding and dying, but it was not dead, and no man can tell just when its foul spirit departed from our land, if indeed it has yet departed, and hence we do not know what day we may properly celebrate as coupled with this great American event. When England, during our late civil war, behaved so badly, I, for one, felt like giving up these first of August celebrations. But I remembered that during that war there were two Englands, as there were two Americas, and that one was true to liberty while the other was true to slavery. It was not the England which gave us West India emancipation that took sides with the slaveholders' rebellion. It was not the England of John Bright and William Edward Forrester that permitted Alabamas to escape from British ports and prey upon our commerce, or that otherwise favored slaveholding in the South. But it was the England which had done what it could to prevent West India emancipation. It was the Tory party in England that fought the abolition party at home, and the same party it was that favored our slaveholding rebellion. Under a different name we had the same, or a similar party, here. A party which despised the negro and consigned him to perpetual slavery. A party which was willing to allow the American Union to be shivered into fragments, rather than that one hair of the head of slavery should be injured. But, fellow citizens, I should but very imperfectly fulfill the duty of this hour if I confined myself to a merely historical or philosophical discussion of West India emancipation. The story of the first of August has been told a thousand times over, and may be told a thousand times more. The cause of freedom and humanity has a history and a destiny nearer home. How stands the case with the recently emancipated millions of colored people in our own country? What is their condition today? What is their relation to the people who formerly held them as slaves? These are important questions, and they are such as trouble the minds of thoughtful men of all colors, at home and abroad. By law, by the Constitution of the United States, slavery has no existence in our country. The legal form has been abolished. By the law and the Constitution, the Negro is a man and a citizen and has all the rights and liberties guaranteed to any other variety of the human family residing in the United States. He has a country, a flag, and a government, and may legally claim full and complete protection under the laws. It was the ruling wish, intention, and purpose of the twenty-five loyal people, after rebellion was suppressed, to have an end to the entire cause of that calamity by forever putting away the system of slavery and all its incidents. In pursuance of this idea, the Negro was made free, made a citizen, made eligible to hold office, to be a juryman, a legislator, and a magistrate. To this end, several amendments to the Constitution were proposed, recommended, and adopted. They are now a part of the supreme law of the land, binding alike upon every state and territory of the United States, North and South. Briefly, this is our legal and theoretical condition. This is our condition on paper and parchment. If only from the national statute book we were left to learn the true condition of the colored race, the result would be altogether creditable to the American people. It would give them a clear title to a place among the most enlightened and liberal nations of the world. 
we could say of our country as curran once said of england the spirit of british law makes liberty commensurate with and inseparable from the british soil now i say that this eloquent tribute to england if only we looked into our constitution might apply to us in that instrument we have laid down the law now and forever that there shall be no slavery or involuntary servitude in this republic except for crime we have gone still further we have laid the heavy hand of the constitution upon the matchless meanness of caste as well as upon the hell-black crime of slavery we have declared before all the world that there shall be no denial of rights on account of race color or previous condition of servitude the advantage gained in this respect is immense it is a great thing to have the supreme law of the land on the side of justice and liberty it is the line up to which the nation is destined to march the law to which the nation's life must ultimately conform it is a great principle up to which we may educate the people and to this extent its value exceeds all speech but to-day in most of the southern states the fourteenth and fifteenth amendments are virtually nullified the rights which they were intended to guarantee are denied and held in contempt the citizenship granted in the fourteenth amendment is practically a mockery and the right to vote provided for in the fifteenth amendment is literally stamped out in face of government the old master class is to-day triumphant and the newly enfranchised class in a condition but little above that in which they were found before the rebellion do you ask me how after all that has been done this state of things has been made possible i will tell you our reconstruction measures were radically defective they left the former slave completely in the power of the old master the loyal citizen in the hands of the disloyal rebel against the government wise grand and comprehensive in scope and design as were the reconstruction measures high and honourable as were the intentions of the statesmen by whom they were framed and adopted time and experience which try all things have demonstrated that they did not successfully meet the case in the hurry and confusion of the hour and the eager desire to have the union restored there was more care for the sublime superstructure of the republic than for the solid foundation upon which it could alone be upheld to the freedmen was given the machinery of liberty but there was denied to them the steam to put it in motion they were given the uniform of soldiers but no arms they were called citizens but left subjects they were called free but left almost slaves the old master class was not deprived of the power of life and death which was the soul of the relation of master and slave they could not of course sell their former slaves but they retained the power to starve them to death and wherever this power is held there is the power of slavery he who can say to his fellow-man you shall serve me or starve is a master and his subject is a slave this was seen and felt by thaddeus stevens charles sumner and leading stalwart republicans and had their counsels prevailed the terrible evils from which we now suffer would have been averted the negro to-day would not be on his knees as he is abjectly supplicating the old master class to give him leave to toil nor would he now be leaving the south as from a doomed city and seeking a home in the uncongenial north but tilling his native soil in comparative independence though no longer a slave he is in a thraldom grievous and intolerable compelled to work for whatever his employer is pleased to pay him swindled out of his hard earnings by money orders redeemed in stores compelled to pay the price of an acre of ground for its use during a single year to pay four times more than a fair price for a pound of bacon and to be kept upon the narrowest margin between life and starvation much complaint has been made that the freedmen have shown so little ability to take care of themselves since their emancipation men have marvelled that they have made so little progress i question the justice of this complaint it is neither reasonable nor in any sense just to me the wonder is not that the freedmen have made so little progress but rather that they have made so much not that they have been standing still but that they have been able to stand at all we have only to reflect for a moment upon the situation in which these people found themselves when liberated consider their ignorance their poverty their destitution 
and their absolute dependence upon the very class by which they had been held in bondage for centuries, a class whose every sentiment was averse to their freedom, and we shall be prepared to marvel that they have, under the circumstances, done so well. History does not furnish an example of emancipation under conditions less friendly to the emancipated class than this American example. Liberty came to the freed men of the United States, not in mercy, but in wrath, not by moral choice, but by military necessity, not by the generous action of the people among whom they were to live, and whose good will was essential to the success of the measure, but by strangers, foreigners, invaders, trespassers, aliens, and enemies. The very manner of their emancipation invited to the heads of the freedmen the bitterest hostility of race and class. They were hated because they had been slaves, hated because they were now free, and hated because of those who had freed them. Nothing was to have been expected other than what has happened, and he is a poor student of the human heart who does not see that the old master class would naturally employ every power and means in their reach to make the great measure of emancipation unsuccessful and utterly odious. It was born in the tempest and whirlwind of war, and has lived in a storm of violence and blood. When the Hebrews were emancipated, they were told to take spoil from the Egyptians. When the serfs of Russia were emancipated, they were given three acres of ground upon which they could live and make a living. But not so when our slaves were emancipated. They were sent away empty-handed, without money, without friends, and without a foot of land upon which to stand. Old and young, sick and well, were turned loose to the open sky, naked to their enemies. The old slave quarter that had before sheltered them, and the fields that had yielded them corn, were now denied them. The old master class, in its wrath, said, Clear out! The Yankees have freed you! Now let them feed and shelter you! Inhuman as was this treatment, it was the natural result of the bitter resentment felt by the old master class, and, in view of it, the wonder is not that the colored people of the South have done so little in the way of acquiring a comfortable living, but that they live at all. Taking all the circumstances into consideration, the colored people have no reason to despair. We still live, and while there is life there is hope. The fact that we have endured wrongs and hardships which would have destroyed any other race, and have increased in numbers and public consideration, ought to strengthen our faith in ourselves and our future. Let us, then, wherever we are, whether at the north or at the south, resolutely struggle on in the belief that there is a better day coming, and that we, by patience, industry, uprightness, and economy, may hasten that better day. I will not listen myself, and I would not have you listen, to the nonsense that no people can succeed in life among a people by whom they have been despised and oppressed. The statement is erroneous and contradicted by the whole history of human progress. A few centuries ago all Europe was cursed with serfdom, or slavery. Traces of this bondage still remain, but are not easily visible. The Jews, only a century ago, were despised, hated, and oppressed, but they have defied, met, and vanquished the hard conditions imposed upon them, and are now opulent and powerful, and compel respect in all countries. Take courage from the example of all religious denominations that have sprung up since Martin Luther. Each in its turn has been oppressed and persecuted. Methodists, Baptists, and Quakers have all been compelled to feel the lash and sting of popular disfavor, yet all in turn have conquered the prejudice and hate of their surroundings. Greatness does not come on flowery beds of ease to any people. We must fight to win the prize. No people to whom liberty is given can hold it as firmly and wear it as grandly as those who wrench that liberty from the iron hand of the tyrant. The hardships and dangers involved in the struggle give strength and toughness to the character, and enable it to stand firm in storm as well as in sunshine. One thought more before I leave this subject, and it is a thought I wish you all to lay to heart. Practice it yourselves, and teach it to your children. It is this. Neither we, nor any other people, will ever be respected till we respect ourselves, and we will never respect ourselves till we have the means to live respectably. An exceptionally poor and dependent people will be despised by the opulent and despise themselves. You cannot make an empty sack stand on end. 
a race which cannot save its earnings which spends all it makes and goes in debt when it is sick can never rise in the scale of civilization no matter under what laws it may chance to be put us in kansas or in africa and until we learn to save more than we spend we are sure to sink and perish it is not in the nature of things that we should be equally rich in this world's goods some will be more successful than others and poverty in many cases is the result of misfortune rather than of crime but no race can afford to have all its members the victims of this misfortune without being considered a worthless race pardon me therefore for urging upon you my people the importance of saving your earnings of denying yourselves in the present that you may have something in the future of consuming less for yourselves that your children may have a start in life when you are gone with money and property comes the means of knowledge and power a poverty-stricken class will be an ignorant and despised class and no amount of sentiment can make it otherwise this part of our destiny is in our own hands every dollar you lay up represents one day's independence one day of rest and security in the future if the time shall ever come when we shall possess in the colored people of the united states a class of men noted for enterprise industry economy and success we shall no longer have any trouble in the matter of civil and political rights the battle against popular prejudice will have been fought and won and in common with all other races and colors we shall have an equal chance in the race for life do i hear you ask in a tone of despair if this time will ever come to our people in america the question is not new to me i have tried to answer it many times and in many places when the outlook was less encouraging than now there was a time when we were compelled to walk by faith in this matter but now i think we may walk by sight notwithstanding the great and all-abounding darkness of our social past notwithstanding the clouds that still overhang us in the moral and social sky and the defects inherited by a bygone condition of servitude it is the faith of my soul that this brighter and better day will yet come but whether it shall come late or come soon will depend mainly upon ourselves the laws which determine the destinies of individuals and nations are impartial and eternal we shall reap as we sow there is no escape the conditions of success are universal and unchangeable the nation or people which shall comply with them will rise and those which violate them will fall and will perhaps disappear altogether no power beneath the sky can make an ignorant wasteful and idle people prosperous or a licentious people happy one ground of hope for my people is founded upon the returns of the last census one of the most disheartening ethnological speculations concerning us has been that we shall die out that like the indian we shall perish in the blaze of caucasian civilization the census sets to rest that heresy concerning us we are more than holding our own in all the southern states we are no longer four millions of slaves but six millions of free men another ground of hope for our race is the progress of education everywhere in the south the colored man is learning to read none now denies the ability of the colored race to acquire knowledge of anything which can be communicated to the human understanding by letters our colored schools in the city of washington compare favorably with the white schools and what is true of washington is equally true of other cities and towns of the south still another ground of hope i find in the fact that colored men are strong in their gratitude to benefactors and firm in their political convictions they cannot be coaxed or driven to vote with their enemies against their friends nothing but the shotgun or the bulldozer's whip can keep them from voting their convictions then another ground of hope is that as a general rule we are an industrious people i have travelled extensively over the south and almost the only people i saw at work there were the colored people in any fair condition of things the men who till the soil will become the proprietors of the soil only arbitrary conditions can prevent this to-day the negro starting from nothing pays taxes upon six millions in georgia and forty millions in louisiana not less encouraging than this is the political situation at the south the vote of the colored man formerly beaten down and stamped out by intimidation is now revived sought 
and defended by powerful allies, and this from no transient sentiment of the moment, but from the permanent laws controlling the action of political parties. While the Constitution of the United States shall guarantee the colored man's right to vote, somebody in the South will want that vote, and will offer the terms upon which that vote can be obtained. Thus the forces against us are passion and prejudice, which are transient, and those for us are principles, self-acting, self-sustaining, and permanent. My hope for the future of my race is further supported by the rapid decline of an emotional, shouting, and thoughtless religion. Scarcely in any direction can there be found a less favorable field for mind or morals than where such a religion prevails. It abounds in the wildest hopes and fears, and in blind unreasoning faith. Instead of adding to faith virtue, its tendency is to substitute faith for virtue, and is a deadly enemy to our progress. There is still another ground for hope. It arises out of a comparison of our past condition with our present one the immeasurable depths from which we have come, and the point of progress already attained. We shall look over the world, and survey the history of another oppressed and enslaved people in vain, to find one which has made more progress within the same length of time than have the colored people of the United States. These, and many other considerations which I might name, give brightness and fervor to my hopes that that better day for which the more thoughtful amongst us have long labored, and the millions of our people have sighed for centuries, is near at hand. End of Appendix